and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would, and Abraham their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was one hundred years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would ha- nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her Egyptian servant, Hagar, making fun of her son Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. This upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told Abraham, Do not be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you. For Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food and a container of water, and strapped them on Hagar's shoulders. Then he sent her away with their son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush. Then she went and sat down by herself, about a hundred yards away. I don't want to watch the boy die, she said, as she burst into tears. But God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up in the wilderness. He became a skillful archer, and he settled in the wilderness of Paran. His mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. So thank you again, Bonnie, for reading for us. We're in Genesis 21 today. Pastor Nathan sends his greetings from Colville. He's on his way back from Washington vacation today. Uh, so you're stuck with me. Apologize for that. Um, and we're in the life of Abraham. We've heard about, we've sung about, we even, Jason listed some of the promises of God to us. But could you remind me, this is shouted out loud here, what are some things God, the God of the Bible, has promised to his people? Just shout it out. Forgiveness, thank you. What else has God promised? Peace. Anything else? Eternal life. Forgiveness. He won't give us more than we can handle, although I challenge you to find that in the Bible. (laughs) What else? He'll be with us when we're overwhelmed. How about that? 
He helps those who help themselves. No, sorry, that was not in the Bible either. No. That's okay. We're going to look at the promises of God today. But the point I want to make to begin with is that God, the God of the Bible, is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And let's have next slide there, Ben. Uh, God is a promise-keeping God. And we need to really uh, compare this with humans because we make a lot of promises in life. Promise to be there to see your ball game. Promise to do this. Promise to do that. But we are fallible and failing. And God is not. God is faithful, as we just sung. He's faithful to keep his promises. Uh, we, though, cannot always follow through on what we promise. Uh, we may promise to uh, to do a, a variety of things and, and fail to follow through on them. One early disappointment I remember as a kid was my dad had promised to take me and my brother to see the Harlem Globetrotters. I'd seen the commercials on TV. It was very exciting. I could even whistle Sweet Georgia Brown. And uh, we got there to the Spokane Arena, and they were sold out of tickets. And I was crushed. I survived somehow, but uh, very disappointed my dad was not God. He could not make more seats in the arena than there were, and they were sold out, and uh, we were left disappointed. Uh, maybe you have scars from much bigger disappointments in life, people that have promised to show up there for you, to be there for you. Uh, maybe they promised to stay faithful in marriage, and they didn't. Maybe they promised to help you with some kind of a project, and they let down their side of, of, of it, and, and you bear the scars from that. Uh, disappointments abound in life because human beings are never going to be able to completely fulfill you. And frankly, if you're looking to other human beings to fulfill you and satisfy you, you are going to be disappointed uh, because human beings are, are, are going to let you down. But God is a God who keeps his promises. We see that in the scriptures. Numbers 23, 19, God's not a man. He does not lie. He's not human, so he does not change his mind. Has God ever spoken and failed to act? Has, his, has he ever promised and not carried it through? Rhetorical question, No. He always keeps his promises. First Samuel fifteen twenty nine. He who is the glory of Israel will not lie nor change his mind. He's not human that he should change his mind. God is a God that keeps his promises. We see that all throughout the story of Abraham. God makes some huge promises. Uh, the the Bible scholars will categorize, categorize these in three areas. God promised Abraham land. He promised him a nation or many descendants to become a great nation. And he promised him blessing. Let's see just some of these examples. God promised him land. He says, all the land you see, I'm going to give you and your offspring forever. Genesis 13. Go walk the length and the breadth. I'm giving this land to you. Genesis 15. To your descendants, I give this land. Genesis 17. The whole land of Canaan where you reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. He promises to make him a great nation. Verse uh, Chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. Chapter 13, I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth. Chapter 15, like the stars of the sky will be your offspring. Uh, chapter 15 later, by the way, they're going to be enslaved in Israel 400 years, but they're going to become a great nation there. I'm going to greatly increase your numbers. Genesis 17, I will bless your wife Sarah, and she will surely uh, give you a son. You're going to give him the name Isaac, he even says. Isaac meaning laughter. In 1721, Sarah will bear you a son by this time next year. Some pretty specific and some pretty broad-reaching promises. And then to be a blessing. Genesis 12, I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
chapter 18. All nations on the earth will be blessed by Abraham. Genesis 22, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Do you get it? Repeating over and over and over these promises. At the end of that passage, your offspring through them, all nations on earth will be blessed. God is building something big. He's building something a blessing for all nations. God is building something big. He's going to use Abraham to do it. Establish a nation, root them in a particular land, and make them a blessing to all nations. Do we know that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God? I fear that too often we are, are, are anemic on our understanding of God's character and of God's promises. We don't know the character of God that well. We don't know what he's promised us that well. And so we can fall into, I think, two, two main errors. One, one being that we don't believe that God can really save us. We don't believe his promise in, in Joel, repeated in Acts and in Romans. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe sometimes we doubt that. We doubt that God is strong enough to keep his promise. And we think, oh, I better hedge my bets. I better save myself. I better try to you know, have enough good works here piled up in addition to Jesus. Jesus plus good works is going to get me into heaven. No, Jesus alone. Jesus alone. We can't engage in enough self-salvation projects to save ourselves. I call them self-salvation projects. All the things that we do, we think these are going to merit us eternal life. And the Bible says, no, it's like filthy rags. All that we can do is like filthy rags. It's only trusting Jesus on the cross. So God's a promise maker, and one of the most important promises, I will take you with me to heaven, Jesus says, if you trust me. I think on the other side, we can think that God's promises are summed up in this way. God wants me to have an easy soft, comfortable life. Wouldn't that be nice? But that's not what God has promised. And when we have hit face-to-face -to, -face to the realities that life is not easy, soft, and comfortable, then in fact, Jesus says in John 16, uh, in this world you will have what? Trouble. You will have trouble. We say, wait a minute. God promised me an easy, soft, comfortable life, right? No, he didn't. He promised you trouble. He promised his presence with you as he, as he goes about life. But uh, we shouldn't think that's what God has promised us. Uh, God has promised us uh, to be with us. Psalm 23, one of the most famous poems in the Bible, uh, in the valley of the shadow of death, right? You are with me in the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't say you're going to rescue me in a helicopter out of the valley. You're going to be with me in the valley. We will have difficult times in life. So to realize that God's presence with us is there, that's a huge one. But do we know the character of God? Do we know the promises of God? Do we know that he wants to build a kingdom and use us as part of it? That's a whole different perspective. Rather than life's all about me, we tend to have that default, and how I can get as much fun and as much comfort in life as possible. That's how we tend to want to live our lives. But the Bible invites us to a bigger thing, a bigger promise of God to be with us as we go about Building the kingdom of God. He's building a kingdom. He invites us into it. Matthew 10, he sends his followers out to proclaim the kingdom and give a foretaste of what's coming. He says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Some pretty crazy stuff. Freely you have received, freely give. And he goes along with them on that mission. 
I fear that if we don't know the character of God or the promises of God, we end up thinking life is a story really all about me. And that's a really limiting story. It's very small because we have a birth date and a death date. Now our spirits go on forever, but the kingdom of God is something much bigger than any one of us. And when we can sink our teeth into that and what he's given us gifts and callings to, to help build his, his kingdom, I say, wow, God, I get to help you in the work you're doing in the world. Uh, you're going with me. Uh, the, the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit and those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That gives me a whole new perspective on life. A promise-making, promise-keeping God. Uh, if you do feel that maybe you don't have a huge grasp of the promises of God, or you'd like to just have some more promises of God to marinate in, to steep yourself in, one thing you could do is mark on the communication card in the back, one of the boxes says, God's Promise List. If you mark that, and if we have your email address or snail mail, we will send you, the office will send you this week, a list of just some of the promises God has made to his people. And I think it's great to simmer in those, to kind of remember who God is and what he said that he would do for his people. Uh, it gives us a wonderful perspective. So mark that, turn it in, we'll send you that this week. Another word about God and promise keeping, though, is that God's timing is always perfect. It may not line up with our desired time frame, but his timing is always perfect. Chapter 12, chapter 21, I'm sorry, verse 1. The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Don't skip over that. God did what he promised he would do because God always keeps his promises. Amen? And he even kept his promise to the exact time of the birth of his son. This time next year, you're going to have a son. God always keeps his promises, and his timing is perfect. Now, scholars think that in Genesis 12, when God first met Abraham and said, I'm going to do some things for you, I'm going to give you a land, a nation, a blessing, that he was about 75 years old. Isaac is born, he's about 100 years old. That's about 25 years between the promise and the fulfillment. Some of you have been waiting a long time to see God's promises come to fulfillment. But it's amazing to see when that happens. You've been praying for a co-worker or a relative, and they finally submit and bow the knee to Jesus. And you say, yes! And we prayed along with them for, for so long for that to happen. Uh, God's timing is always perfect. But it may not be our timing. When God promises to turn my mourning into joy and gladness, I want that now. When he promises to deliver me from my enemies, I want that yesterday. Um, he is a perfect promise keeper, and that extends even to the timing of fulfilling his promises, but it may not be the timing that we would have preferred, but it's always perfect. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. One reason God is slow, is we would say slow, in keeping his promise to come back, and to bring the kingdom of God into full fruition, full bloom, with Jesus on the throne and us, his humble subjects. One reason he hasn't returned yet is because he wants people to come to faith in Christ. He's giving people time to repent and to come to faith. And they say, God says, I want you to name the son Isaac. Isaac means laughter. Isn't that interesting? What a name to grow up with. Give me your laughter. Don't forget to clean your room, laughter. I have the next slide, Ben. Uh, but I think whenever they called their son Isaac, they remembered God's promises. And they remembered the joy and the delight that comes with God's promises being fulfilled. 
I have a professor from seminary who whenever he would see all caps L-O-R-D in the Bible, that's the Hebrew uh, Yahweh, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, which means Yahweh, it's the name of God, the personal name of God. And so if you see all caps in your Old Testament, that means, oh, that's Yahweh, the name of God. Whenever my professor Carl Laney would see that, he would say to himself, Yahweh, the God who always keeps his promises. If we have that perspective on life, Yahweh, the God that always keeps his promises, what would that do to change our, our mindset? He is the God who keeps his promises. What a nice little story, right? Would it be great if we stopped right there and said, oh, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, what a nice little family. Let's just keep on going. But we see in after the first seven verses a really um, sick twist of events as we see just how fickle and cruel and tyrannical people can be. Some unjust persecution. And it comes from the good guys in the story. It comes from God's people. Did you know that our some of the leaders in our church are reading a book called Wounded by God's People? And it's written by Billy Graham's daughter, Anne Graham Watts. But it's the story of Abraham and Sarah mistreating Hagar. Wounded by God's people. God's people are doing the wounding here. And so we see that God, uh, he hears the cry of the oppressed. But it's God's people doing the oppressing. Verse 9. Sarah saw that uh, Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, was mocking at this party. And she says to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. for That slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. She won't even give him the dignity of saying his name. That slave woman's son. This is not the first time that Hagar has mistreated, been mistreated by Sarah. Back in chapter 16, uh, maybe 15 years ago, it was Sarah's idea for Abraham to sleep with her servant Hagar and let Hagar be kind of a surrogate mother for her. Kind of messed up. That's seriously messed up, actually. And when Hagar becomes pregnant, Sarah starts to mistreat or abuse Hagar, resulting in Hagar running away. The Lord meets her there and says, I see you, I see your pain, I'm with you. She returns. Here, 15 years later, though, uh, they're having a party for, for baby Isaac, and uh, Ishmael starts mocking. Don't all teenage boys mock? It's kind of what they do. Ishmael's mocking, and, and Sarah says, kick her out, kick her to the curb. And Abraham is grieved, but the Lord says, it's okay, let her have her way. And God says he will take care of them. But don't let that mistake the fact that Abraham and Sarah behaved very, very poorly, scandalously. They abused and mistreated this servant. Even having a servant to begin with is a problem. And we should see in the Bible, when we see behavior, and it isn't commented on, and that was very bad, or, and that greatly displeased the Lord. Don't believe that that's approved by God. For instance, we see a lot of the patriarchs and a lot of the kings of Israel take multiple wives. And we think, oh, does that mean it's okay? No, we call that descriptive language versus proscriptive, like you should do this. The Bible says don't take multiple wives, but they do, and we see even here some of the pain and hurt that comes with that. And, and, and the same thing with kicking her to the curb. Uh, we aren't to misuse or oppress or abuse people, even though we see it happening here, from God's people. It's always wrong to oppress people. It's always bad. Uh, so is polygamy. So is revenge killing. So is taking slaves. But we see all these things happening in the Bible. I want to take a little bit of a rabbit trail and talk about abuse or oppression and what the Bible has to say about that. It actually has to say quite a bit about that. Here's some scriptures. Exodus 23, do not, do not oppress a foreigner, for you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were slaves and foreigners in Egypt. 
Psalm 9, the Lord's a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Second one on this slide, Luke 4, Jesus reads this from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. We even read that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted. And so throughout Scripture, God has a special place in his heart for the oppressed. He hears their cry. And if we are perpetrating abuse and oppression, we are working against God. And God says to his people over and over again in the prophets, if you want me to hear your prayers, if you want me to honor your worship, why don't you stop mistreating your slaves? Why don't you stop abusing people and oppressing people? That's what I want from you. Not beautiful songs of praise or wonderful offerings. I want you to treat people fairly and justly. So we don't want to be against God, do we? God loves to hear the cries of the oppressed. We tend to like stories of the victors, of the brave, right? Those who won the battle. We celebrated July 4th last week. We say that ours is the home of the brave. and That's wonderful. The victory that God's given us has given us many opportunities as a land. And yet, God's got a special place in this heart for the oppressed, for the downcast, the disadvantaged, the beat down. He is on their side. He hears their cries. And God's people ought to be at the forefront of efforts to bring justice, to bring compassion and mercy. And many times they are at the front, handing out food when there's been a, a disaster, building schools and hospitals. Um, one thing you can mark on your card is, I want to know about helping the, dis the disadvantaged. I'll send you information about different things we're doing within our region or even around our country to help those who are disadvantaged. But we want to be the first ones to come to the aid of those who are desperate. God certainly hears her cries. Verse 17, just a, actually back to verse 15, a very, very heartbreaking uh, scene here. Abraham and Sarah basically send her off with some Cheez-Its and a canteen of water. And, and the water runs out, and the, the water is gone. She puts the boy under a bush. Verse 16, Hagar went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away, where she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. It's just desperation. It's just terrible. And this oppression came from God's people. Don't forget that. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, What's the matter? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift him up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God is compassionate. He is gracious. He is merciful. It's kind of a big deal, too, that Hagar hears God's voice here and also in chapter 16. She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She's an Egyptian slave girl. God cares about her, and God speaks to her several times. Do you believe that God hears us calling out to him when we're desperate? He sure says he does, and he takes, takes the side of the oppressed. I want to invite Robert Miller up to talk to us a little bit more. He is uh, not only the husband of Erica, he's also famous for being the father of um, Isaiah and Micah and uh, Eliana. Gift of God. Uh, he also is our children's director. He also just finished his master's in social work. Praise Jesus. Whew. Yes. Love it. Uh, but Robert also does some work up in Eugene with an agency called CAFA, Christians as Family Advocates. And they have said, Robert, we want you to take that and bring it to Roseburg. Do exactly what, we, what we've been doing up here for 20 plus years, 27 years, and bring it to Roseburg. 
and he's working with a therapist with them now, but he's coming in the fall to open up an agency called FARA, Family, Faith, and, Relig and Relationship Advocates. And they're working with a population that's oppressed, a population that, that deals with abuse, that deals with violence in the home. And I want to ask him a few questions. First of all, why? The why of abuse. Why do you sense people are abusers? Why do they use a controlling and abusive behavior to harm others? Um, let's put it like this. Uh, research shows uh, when a baby comes out, within three minutes if put on a mommy's tummy, it's immediately going for the face. Not for food, for the face. God made us to come out looking for someone looking for us. And, uh, uh, and so we're kind of this Blake blank canvas, so to speak, when we're born. And uh, do we have a mom and dad in the picture? Is it just a single parent? Is it grandparents raising this child? Is it a foster care system? Depending on who the painters are when this child is born, they're painting on this canvas. So they're showing this child how to deal, as they're painting, how to deal with anger, how to deal with trauma, how to deal with whether or not we say sorry or we don't, or whether or not we deal with the emotions or or put them under their carpet. And so uh, depending on that primary caregiver, um, they're painting. And if you're blessed as a child to have a primary caregiver, parents that are painting love and mercy and understanding and communication and uh, uh, compassion, uh, then you're going to grow up uh, to be a young adult and that canvas turns into kind of a blueprint. And so now I'm a blueprint of kind of how I handle life because of what I've seen and who had that influence on my life. Maybe we, someone, uh, myself wasn't as blessed. Five, my mother had five divorces and a lot of trauma and abuse in my home. I didn't see love and compassion. Maybe they were painting poverty. Uh, maybe there's a canvas being painted with addiction or mental health or divorce or all the different things that we go through as human beings that might keep us from painting good things on our childs. And so what that looks like when I become a young adult, I become a blueprint. Uh, I have a blueprint, a way of how to handle stress. And so uh, though I didn't become uh, a physical abusive uh, as I got older because I saw it too much, um, I did become emotional abusive because we do learn. We only know what we know. And I believe God has given us the ability to do the best we can today with what we know. And until we know better, we can't do differently. We're always going to do what we know. And so I always had kind of defaulted to relationships when things didn't go my way. I handled things a certain way because that's kind of how I saw things handled. So um, uh, what was the question? What I, what I hear you saying, I'll, I'll answer the question that you already answered. What he's saying is people people tend to use abusive behaviors not because they want to be the baddest person they can be, but doing the best they know how with what they saw growing up. Yeah. They, we, we only God only allows us to know what to do when we've seen it do. I'm not Michael Jordan. Uh, I don't know how to hit a basketball shot until someone has shown me how to pick up a basketball and actually and it goes in the little round thing. And So we do what we know. How do you teach people to get new skills? Or what are some of the skills you teach people? What we do up north and what we'll be doing here um, once we open FARA in, in October is we offer uh, mandated classes and we also offer volunteer classes for anger management, for emotional intelligence. What does that mean? Daniel Goleman came up with this. Um, earlier I said Dan Siegel, but he takes emotional intelligence and does something. But Daniel Goleman came up with emotional intelligence. And it's a, it's a, a journey of learning new perspectives, new skills, finding out about you. So how do I operate? What do I do when I get mad? Mm. Oops, sorry, I didn't mean to do that when you cut me off. Okay, so I tend to lean 
I would love to learn a new way to handle that situation. And so that's what we do. We give new skills, new perspectives. You know, until we learn new things, we're putting on the same goggles every morning when we wake up. We look through our lenses because it's our life. And until we learn, oh my gosh, there's another pair of sunglasses over here that shows life in a little bit. Wow, I didn't know that before. So, and if you don't have that opportunity to go to a class or to seek, I, I, I do individual therapy with a lot of uh, uh, clients looking for uh, how to handle their emotions, how to do better in relationships, how to be equipped. You've given them new tools for their toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you don't have that, you can go online and look at Daniel Goleman's Emotional Intelligence. It's a really neat little journey that uh, gives you the opportunity to learn, to be educated, and then find out where you stand in all of it. And then, okay, what can I do about that? Okay, let's learn new behaviors. And abuse would be more than, you mentioned, more than just physical, it's also emotional, there's, it is. there's uh, abandonment. There is. There's, I mean, there, actually the most harming abuse is neglect. Not physical, but you think physical abuse, but physical abuse has a scar that heals and goes away. Neglect has scars people don't see. And so they're there for years. And so uh, abuse doesn't always just look physical. It could be emotional. It could be control. It could be financial abuse. It could be uh, marital abuse. It could be the, the way that I make sure that I'm in control of everything I do. And again, that comes down to, I believe, pride. It's a sin, and we've got to release that before God and then learn new tools because it just doesn't. God is an amazing God. He does miracles overnight, I believe, and miracles every day. I believe that he can change my life today. But I also allow, believe that he allows us to go down a journey to learn new New, new ways of thinking, of doing things, of handling relationships. So if folks want to learn more about some of the stuff Robert's talking about, there's another mo- bo- box to mark on the back of your card that says OPAC, O-P-A-C, and that's uh, a class he teaches, Overcoming Power, Anger, and Control. If you mark that, we'll send you a link to the class, and Eugene, you could go attend it or send someone up to attend it. It's also coming to Roseburg, Lord willing, this fall. Um, but we'll also send some information, some links to things he's talked about, emotional intelligence and ways you could research this for yourself. Because I believe probably all of us have tendencies to misuse our anger or to use the power over other people to mistreat them. And uh, another thing you could learn about is you can learn about the agency he's opening. Uh, do you have brochures out of the next step? I have three different brochures out there, including a, uh, an event we're doing on August 30th at the end of August for a kind of a, a gala, silent auction, so we can show the community who we are, why we are, and, and, and why now. It's incredibly exciting. I'm on his board for that, and you should check out Fara. Come to the banquet August 30th. Learn more about this. Be excited. Yeah. Hear from folks in Eugene what's happening. Uh, but thank you for sharing, Robert. That was wonderful. <laughs> Abuse is never okay, even, 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 especially when God's people are perpetrating it. Uh, if you are the victim of abuse in some way, know that God hears you. God heard Hagar. But do try to get help. Do try to reach out to someone. And so many I know have tried and said, yeah, talk to so-and-so. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. Just uh, we, we want to be compassionate hearers. And there are people, there are lots of ways to get help in our community that I'm aware of if you are the victim of abuse. And if you are abusing, if you are abusing your power, uh, please, please know that you are working against God. God does not like it when we oppress and abuse others. We aren't going to stop all injustice or oppression until Christ returns, but we can learn new skills, as Robert said, to help others and to help ourselves. Finally, we see in this passage that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is good enough and powerful enough to bring good out of bad choices. He's gracious with our mistakes, with our screw-ups. He can, he's good enough and, and powerful enough to bring good out of our poor choices or even evil behavior. 
God isn't saying it's okay that, that Hagar was abused. He is saying, I'm going to take care of her and I'm going to take care of you. And God is so good, so masterful at taking our failures, our faltering, and making good out of it. I'm glad, I'm glad that God is not one and done or one strike and you're out when it comes to dealing with our shortcomings, our failures, even our outright rebellion. Just look at any of the human beings in the Bible. Moses, Elijah, David, Gideon, Solomon. There was a young woman here a few years ago, started reading the Bible for the first time, and she said to me, Pastor, I think I might be reading the book of Genesis wrong because everyone seems really screwed up. I said, no, I think you're reading it just right. That's exactly the point. Uh, the hero of the Bible is Jesus. The hero of the Bible is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. The hero of the Bible isn't Abraham, Moses, Noah. The hero is God and what he's doing in spite of these screw-ups. Our decisions cannot thwart God's purposes. God's not like, Hagar, never saw that coming. He, he is grieved by the actions of human beings, though, and but he's able to bring good out of that. There are consequences, don't get me wrong. There are consequences when we try to do things on our own, when we try to force our time frame. Think of the fact that in the book of Exodus, the Israelites had to wander 40 years in the desert. A whole generation died as a consequence of them not trusting God. There may be natural consequences like disease, broken relationships, jail time. These are all consequences. Our rebellion can lead us to be distanced in our, distanced in our relationship with God. A consequence of Abraham and Sarah's lack of faith to make good in his promise was the mistreatment of Hagar and the existence of Ishmael. God was going to bless Ishmael, but who are the descendants of Ishmael today? Many of the Arab tribes came from Ishmael. The founders of the religion of Islam descended from Ishmael. There's been some consequences from Abraham and Sarah's unbelief and their actions. Islam claims Ishmael as one of its great prophets. This is a really challenging fact, but is God sovereign enough and strong enough and good enough to bring good even out of those poor choices? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. We can have a, a faulty theology that says that God just wants to bless the good guys. He wants to just bless us and our camp. And our camp gets smaller and smaller all the time. But God wants to bless all nations. And God did bless all nations through Abraham. Not through his obedience, but through his disobedience too much at the time. I think that for much of Israel's history and much of the church's history, we've thought God's blessings are just for us to hoard for ourselves. But even in the end of Genesis, Genesis 21, we see how the blessing of all nations is starting to take form and, and that Abimelech, this other foreign leader, sees how God has blessed Abraham and says, I want to be on his side. Let's make a treaty. I, I know that the God of the Bible, he's a God that blesses Abraham. Ultimately, uh, you know, we're all blessed through Jesus being a descendant of Abraham. But even at the end of Genesis, we see uh, Jacob, uh, the grandson of, of Abraham, blessing Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And we say, oh, wow, okay. Blessing isn't just for Israel, it's for all the nations. I'm not sure if you follow current trends and global missions, but let me tell you, some exciting things are happening in traditionally Muslim lands. Muslims are being brought to faith in Jesus. We hear missionaries telling stories of Muslims having dreams and visions of, of Jesus. Uh, and then the missionaries show up and they're all primed and ready. They say, we were waiting for you. 
In 2013, it was estimated that in, that in traditionally Muslim lands, there are currently 10 million believers in Jesus from Muslim background. And so there are doors being opened for the gospel. Even in our own midst, we have some Darfur refugees, and we, we hear how Muslim-on-Muslim violence is opening up their hearts for the gospel. Not that any of that's good, but God can bring good out of even those terrible things. God's good enough and powerful enough to bring good out of bad. The most famous verse in the Bible on this is Romans 8.28. And it says this, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. This doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. Oppressing Hagar, not good. Drunk drivers, not good. Hurricanes wreaking havoc, not good. But God can work good out of even terrible injustice. And that's really good news because there's so much injustice in our world today, isn't there? So much suffering. How do I know this? That God can do this? Well, the most powerful example of God turning something bad into something good is Jesus' death on the cross. It's not a good thing that the only innocent person that ever lived was cruelly and brutally tortured, not for his own sins, because he never sinned, but for the sins of you and I and the whole world. That terrible act of evil God used to bring the greatest blessing the world has ever known. Sinners like you and I can be forgiven from our bondage to sin and death. Isn't it interesting that Abraham and Sarah were asked to trust what God said about a baby? And we're asked to trust what God said about a baby who grew and lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death he didn't deserve on a cross. When we believe what God said about that baby, we're grafted into this family of Abraham and the blessing and the promises to Abraham. I want to go ahead and invite our worship team to come up for our closing song, but I want to share some really important things with you. And so I mean, I need to go get them out there. Thank you. They're out having a party in the lobby. Now, here they are. They're right here. They went to first service. It's fine. I think we want to lay down our self-salvation projects because we can't save ourselves. God says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not by coming to church regularly, not by giving to the offering, not by serving. Those are all good things, but that's not what gets you to heaven. It's only Jesus' death on a cross 2,000 years ago. How do we make that real for us? I can't make it simpler than three words we try to use in our house a lot. Sorry, thank you, please. Really, the heart of the good news and receiving Jesus is this. God, I'm sorry. I've made a mess of my life. I have, bro- I have broken your laws. I've, I have abused my power and authority. I, I, have, uh, I, have, I have sinned. I've fallen short of what you want, God. I've made a mess of my life. Thank you, though, that you made a way back. You made a way to you through the cross. I turn away from the bad stuff and I turn to you. Thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then please come into me by your Holy Spirit. Make me a new person. That's the way to God. There's no other way that I know of to be made right with God than through Jesus. Not through our own self-salvation, but trusting who God says he is, trusting that he will do what he promised he would do. I'm going to pray and lead you in a prayer like that in a moment, if you haven't prayed to receive the Lord. But if you want to know more about this relationship with God, another box you can mark on your communication card, I've got about four so far, is today I want to trust Jesus alone for salvation. And we'll follow up with you and help you understand what it means to walk with Jesus as a personal relationship.
So what are we called to do from Genesis 21? I think at least three things. Trust in the character and the promises of God. And get to know who he is. The best way to do that is the Bible. That's why we preach out of it. That's why we teach out of it. That's why we want you to read it for yourself. This is the best way to get to know the character and the promises of God. Trust him. Second, realize God is a friend to the oppressed. If that is you, if you are the oppressed, know that God hears you. And if you are an oppressor, please try to find a way to learn some new skills, some new tools. And thirdly, trust yourself to Jesus. Believe what he said. Believe that he is who he says he was. Rely on him alone. Your good works don't amount to anything more than filthy rags, the Bible says. Stop trying to save yourself. That's the good news. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are a piece of work. We know we don't impress you by our good, our good external appearance. We can't impress you by our good works. You know we need saving, and that's why you came to earth and got involved in our mess. God, I am sorry, we are sorry for the ways that we have made a wreck of our life, of your world, of relationships. Uh, we have done plenty to, to make a mess of this world. But thank you that through Jesus you are bringing good out of even the most evil of, of situations and the most uh, calloused of actions. You are strong enough and powerful enough. So thank you that on the cross, Jesus, you took the punishment for my sin, for our sin. I want to turn away from the bad stuff. I want to turn away from all the stuff I know is wrong and turn to you and look you full in the face without shame because you paid it. You've, you've paid for and taken the penalty and the price for my shame. And please, God, come into my heart, come into our, our hearts and make us new people by your Holy Spirit. Help us to turn from oppression, turn from controlling behaviors and trust ourselves to you. You are good and your mercy endures forever. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.